Yes, we're in the book of Revelation. And before we get to the four horsemen of the apocalypse, before we get to the seals of judgment and the bowls of God's wrath, what are we learning that the whole book of Revelation is really revealing? What are we learning? It's revealing who? Jesus, the book of Revelation, is not about the Antichrist, though he's in it, but he is not the lead role. It's not about the judgments, those, those, though those things take place. Those are just the background, the backdrop, as it were. You know, if you're, on the, if you're thinking of Broadway, there's a backdrop right here, and then you see the actors and the main characters. That's just the backdrop. The main character is Jesus. The revelation is who Jesus is. And so last week, I think I threw some of you guys for a loop as we began to study the in-depth doctrine of Jesus. And uh, I thought second service would do better, but they didn't, and that's okay. They even, they even had a chart, and it didn't help them much. So what we're going to do is we're going to slow it down. Everybody say, slow. We're going to slow it down. I'm going to make sure everybody understands the Trinity. I want to make sure everybody understands the nature of Jesus, why Jesus is called the firstborn. It doesn't mean he's the first created. Why Jesus says the Father is his God, and yet he's still equal with God, that doesn't mean he's a lesser kind of secondary created God. We're going to take our time because the scriptures are clear. Now, here's the good news. We will just review the more complicated understanding at the beginning and then get into what is perfectly clear. Everybody should get it. It's more simple. So let me go through all the verses with you that we've already gone through because we've already gone through a few, okay? We've already gone, only gone through six. So let me just read through those. Review. Everybody say review is for you. Amen. It's to help the congregation, and then we'll go to learn about Jesus being the first and the last. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Now, right here, I tried to show you that if Jesus owns the angels and their his possession, that must mean that he is equal to the Father because the Bible says in Psalm 104.4 that the angels belong to God and God alone. But it got a little bit complicated there, so we're going to see Revelation 22.16 in just a minute. But here's the, the introduction. Jesus is giving the revelation via his angel, and every now and then he's going to pop up as well. Now, this angel testifies uh, what he has saw, okay? And now this angel is going to give this word to John, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud. So we're not supposed to be ashamed of the book. Blessed are the ones who read aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. Some may say, I'm blessed. And take it to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Now go to Revelation twenty two sixteen, And brother, stay on each passage before we move to the next verses so they can see it. But for now, go to Revelation twenty two sixteen. Psalm says that the angels belong to God. You and I may have angels serve us, but they do not belong to us. How many know you may go to a hotel and someone may serve you there, but you are not the boss of the server? Or the person helping. Did I just lose everybody? Was him moving that screen around so distracting? It's going to be a long Sunday. Help me, Jesus. I start vacation tomorrow, Lord, so I'm just going to think about Florida, sweet Orlando, in the name of Jesus. Let's start again. You go to the hotel. There's a server there. There is a maitre d' there. There is someone helping you. They're helping you. They're serving you. But are you their boss? No, you go to a restaurant. 
There is another kind of person, a server, a waiter, a waitress, a maitre d', etc. They are helping you. They are serving you. But are you their boss? No. Angels come and angels serve us. They help us. They are under the commands of Jesus that we pray we do not pray to them. We pray to the Father in Jesus' name, and Jesus dispatches them to serve us. They are ministers to us, but do they belong to us? Are they ours? Can I say, like I can say of a pet, this is my dog. Can I say, this is my, I own, this is my guardian angel? No, I can say, this is my angel assigned to me, etc. but I cannot take ownership of that angel. That angel belongs to God. Let's go back to the psalm. Go to the psalm reference because I got to go slow today. Psalm 104. Go to Psalm 104. Hold that position there, please, just so you can understand that God owns angels. How many know God owns angels? Amen. God owns the angels. Psalm 104. Now, it talks about the Lord and all the good things that he does. Now, look at verse 3. He makes the clouds his chariot and he rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, or in the Hebrew, his malak, his angels. He makes these spirits, another word for wind is spirit. He makes these spirits his messengers, flames of fires, his servants. So who do the angels belong to? They belong to God. Okay, now go to Revelation 22. I, Jesus, at the end, last chapter of the book, I, Jesus, have sent whose angel? My angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Go back to the notes, please. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what soon must take place, he made it known by sending what? His angel. Now, if I say I own angels, I am either blaspheming or I am equal to God. Does everybody get that? If I say I own the Trump Tower and I am the boss of everyone there, I am either lying or I am the Trump person, okay? When Jesus says I am sending angels, angels are doing what I want them to do. They're coming directly from me on my orders. He is showing us his ownership of that which is in heaven. This is important because people continue who disbelieve in the Trinity want Jesus to be an angelic-like creature, a second kind of God-like, a God kind of angel that uh, the devil is called. He's the God of this world. He's a fallen angel. That Some Jehovah Witnesses say that, that Jesus is the archangel, Michael, etc. This is very clear to us. This is not an angel. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Also, being very clear, Jesus is not a created angel. He is not a secondary God to the Father. He is equal with the Father, and all that belongs to the Father belongs to him. Look at verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Nothing is said about any other creature. Even though we're made in the image of God, we're not the exact representation of his entire being. Jesus is. Now, go on down here. It says in verse 4, so he, talking about Jesus, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. The name he has is God with us, or Yahweh, the self-existing one. He in the flesh is the God-man. And then the author of Hebrews is very clear. This is where you could take your Jehovah Witness friends or to anyone who says that Jesus is like an angel. The Bible is clear he's not an angel. For to which of the angels did he ever, son, uh, did he ever say, you are my son, today I've become your father. 
Now, we're about ready to get back into this when we learn about the firstborn. I'm going to give you an A or B option. Did Jesus, according to the scriptures, become the Son of God at his incarnation or at his resurrection? Incarnation is A. How many think Jesus was declared the Son of God at his virgin birth? A, option A. Few of you. How many believe it was at his resurrection? Only two of you. You guys are right, by the way. Nobody else wanted to vote. Let's go to the notes. We'll show you that directly from the scripture. Now, when you look at the Bible, it's teaching us who Jesus is. Now let's go to verse 4, please. John is going to now introduce himself. John, to the seven churches in the providence of Asia, grace and peace to you from who is and was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, when we look at this passage here, and it says, who is and who was and who is to come, we are to know that that is the Father. When we hear about the seven spirits before his throne, we know that's the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, the Son. Now, remember when I showed you the seven manifestations of God's Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11. Let's go there. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And I asked you to count how many manifestations do you see in the book of Isaiah. And as we see, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of counsel, excuse me, the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Does everybody see how there's six there? But I ask you to look into the Septuagint, which we believe can be more accurate to the Masoretic text at different times, and this would be one of those times, and it actually says the spirit of piety, spirit of godliness, that adds your seven. But because, go ahead and show it to him in the, in the Septuagint, please. But because I want to be a good teacher to you, I want you to understand how some have also answered that without going to the Septuagint. They believe that the Spirit of God named as the first one is the center of the menorah, the center of the menorah, and then there's three that go on each side. So the Spirit of the Lord would be named as a spirit, and then each set of those two would make up that seven. Does everybody get that? Half of you get that. Put up a picture of the menorah, please. Let's give it up for our documentary team. Let's give it up for them. Conversations that matter. Amen. They'll be joining us here with their cameras. Yeah, show them the menorah, because some people may say, Joe, I'm a little bit leery of putting, uh, you know, pitting translations against each other, and sometimes this may be confusing to others. So there are Christians who have looked at this and said, I can see seven even here without having to look at the Septuagint and what may be a variant of the seventh one being missing. So give us a nice blowed up picture of that. Okay, does everybody see that there's seven candlesticks here, and that the middle one may be significant to the others? So when we go to the Masoretic text, which is the Old Testament version that you're getting a translation from in the NIV, swipe over so they can see the NIV there before we go back to the, uh, the Septuagint. Here it says, notice, the Spirit of the Lord. Now, you can count from here, one Spirit of the Lord in the middle. Does everybody get that? Okay, half of you get it. Let's go back to the menorah. Go back to the menorah. I wish I, had a, I could draw this for you. Okay. We're going to count seven just from the Masoretic text, and some people are going to count the center one, the Spirit of the Lord. Does everybody get that? Okay, awesome. Go back to the text then. Now you're going to see sets of two. Okay, so a middle one is going to be called Spirit of the Lord. Now the two going to each side. Wisdom, understanding. Counsel, might. Okay? And then the knowledge and fear of the Lord. How many get it? Go back, go back, let's see. Okay, there you go. So you notice that it says Spirit of the Lord, 
and then there's two sets, uh, there's three sets of two. That's how some people reconcile there being seven when the Masoretic text did not have seven named. The Septuagint has the seven. Go to the Septuagint. It adds in the spirit of piety, okay? So go all the way down here. There you go. Spirit of knowledge and piety. So this is where we call a variant. Is piety the original being preserved in the Septuagint, or is this a scribe adding something in that wasn't there? The original is what we have in the NIV. So there are different opinions among scholars, but I wanted to show you this, that you can reconcile the seven in either translation. Amen? Amen. Going back to the notes. So we know who is, who was, and who is to come is the Father. The seven spirits is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead. And remember, we took that vote. When was he declared the firstborn from among the dead? Go to Acts chapter 13, verse 32. Now, some of you might have thought that was a trick question because at baptism, Jesus is said to be the son. This is my son, right? And then at the mountain of transfiguration, this is my son. But these are prophetic utterances towards the time when he will become the son of David, ruling and reigning as the eternal king. He is the son eternally, but when the father is speaking this, he's doing it prophetically so that when Jesus is appointed as king, this day he is now coronated. Now, to understand coronation and what happens at coronation, you can go back to Old Testament times. David, as we will see in just a little bit, David, when he was coronated king, was declared to be God's firstborn. But how many know that David was not the firstborn out of Jesse's family? But at his coronation as king, he was declared that. And remember, he was anointed as king before that. So you could see these anointings and these declarations as prophetic in David's life as well. But it's at his coronation that he is declared the son of God, his firstborn on the earth. And out of that is going to be the type and shadow which Jesus fulfilled. Jacob is also called Abraham's firstborn as God prefers him over Esau, but Esau technically was the firstborn. Is everybody tracking with me? So these are important concepts to understand. Now, Paul is preaching here, and he says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by what? raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm you are my son today I have become your father God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay and God said I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David now go back to the notes and then you'll see this in the life of David applied to Jesus go to psalm 89 27 when was David declared to be the firstborn of God? At his anointing, at his birth? No, he wasn't born the first, and he wasn't declared that at his anointing, at his inauguration to kingship. This is important to understand because now Jesus is going to be appointed to be the firstborn. Where it may be a little tricky for you because is he not, the question may come back, is not Jesus the eternal son with the father? Yes, he is. But when he becomes the God man in the flesh, he is now receiving an appointment, an ordination to kingship in the line of David, a certain way to fulfill the prophecy. 
Verse 26, he will call out to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock, my savior. This is now Jesus saying this to the father. Now, this is the point we have to remember when we get into the part of Revelation where it says Jesus has a God. It says his God, Jesus is God. And the Jehovah Witness will say, how can God have a God? It says why this will happen. When Jesus takes on flesh, is he going to be an atheist? No, when he takes on flesh to be the God-man, never, never stop being God, but adding to his divinity, his uh, humanity, is he going to stop worshiping and loving and being in fellowship with his Father? No, so now as the God-man, he will declare to the Father, you are my Father, my God, the rock, my Savior. So the Son is the perfect man now worshiping and adoring his father. He did what Adam, the first Adam, could not do. As the second Adam, he is fulfilling that. And this is where it gets really cool. Because Christ has fulfilled that now in him, that's where that language is very important to understand. And the epistles especially is now in Christ, humanity is saved. Humanity is now going to be glorified. Humanity is now going to share in the nature of Christ, partaking of that divine nature. But it's only because God took on flesh and has now made a way for us to receive as humanity the things God has to give us. He is now mediating that glory faucet of Jesus of the Father. And if Jesus never would have took on flesh, we would have no access to the divine privileges. We had been given them. We had lost them. Now they are restored in the God-man. So Jesus is going to declare this to his Father. And then the Father, I will appoint him to be my firstborn. So it's not like you're born and then you're my firstborn. That's how they think. Jesus is created. He's the firstborn. He's the first created. First of all, teach them the word firstborn does not mean first created. And then show them in scriptures that firstborn can be an appointment. David was appointed to this because this psalm is also to the coronation of David as a king. David is going to declare God as his father. David is going to declare that, that he is his rock and savior. And the father will say to him, you are now my firstborn. That's going to be prophetic to Jesus coming. But we know the fulfillment of that is Jesus. Jesus is declaring who God is. The father now declares, you are my firstborn, the exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever. My covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne, as long as the heavens endure. How many understand that has now left David and gone to the God-man, Jesus Christ, who has become the fulfillment of the promise of the seed of David, the son of David. Amen? Okay, going back to the notes, the scripture. When we see that Jesus is declared the firstborn, it even says it in the text. He is the firstborn from what? The dead. Firstborn of being made? No, he is the firstborn of creation that has raised from the dead. Now, and, and received his glorified body. Lazarus raised from the dead, still had to die again, etc. Jesus is the first one to receive the glorified body of a human. The first one. That's why he's considered the firstborn among the dead. This does not in any way say that he is somehow the first to be made in creation. Now go to Colossians 1.18 and then the helpful graph that I gave last week. And we'll put you guys on the spot and see if you can do it. Here we go. Go to the... Um, Go to Colossians chapter 1. Got a seminary student here as well. Here we go. 
The same language is used. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, or, or uh, in heaven rather, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now let's go to the notes and to the graph, please. If Jesus is the first before all things, and John says, through him all things were made. Colossians also says it in the verses prior. Can he be a created being? R.C. Sproul taught this. It's a very simple chart to make. On one side, put uncreated creator. The very thing that we know is not created. On the other side of the chart, put that which is created. Where is Jesus going to go according to John? Through him, the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So can Jesus be on the created side if he's the creator of everything that's been made? Of course not. It's redonkulous. Now, when it comes to Colossians, this is where it got deep, okay? And I got another chart here. We're going to make sure we get it. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And once again, they go, that means the first made of all creation. No, it means he is coronated as the firstborn from the dead, as the text continues on, right? But it clarifies in verse 16, for in him, how many things? All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. And we've read the rest of that passage. So now this is where I ask the question. This is Paul's logic, by the way. Paul is logical. Paul is not only spiritual, Paul is logical. He's going to employ here the law of non-contradiction. Can you be, listen, a creature created and not be one of these two categories, visible or invisible? No, you cannot be a created creature that doesn't fall into one of those two categories. If you are created, you are either visible or invisible. How about this? If you are a created creature, can you dwell somewhere in creation other than the heavens or on earth? No. Let's go to the chart because you guys are doing amazing. Doing amazing. Because this is the incorrect version that a lot of cults try to use. That only God is the uncreated creator, but then he creates Jesus. And then through Jesus, he creates every other thing, some of their translations will say. Jesus created the visible and the invisible things. Well, then we have a question. If Jesus is God's first creation, and by Jesus, he creates everything visible and invisible, then what is he? What is he? Is he visible or invisible? Because he's a creature. But yet, a being can only exist as invisible or visible. Therefore, he cannot be a created being. If he created everything that's visible and invisible, he cannot be one of those things. And if he can't be one of those things, how can he exist? You can't exist other than being visible and invisible. And now some people say, well, he was in the bosom of the Father. Ding, ding, ding. That's the point. The point is he is in nature, one with the Father in the bosom of his being, and only God existing before all creation. That's where he's at. He's with God in God's nature, in God's nature. Now, is God's nature considered invisible? Yes, but God doesn't create himself invisible. He doesn't create himself that way. To us, he is invisible by definition of his nature. So when, we create, when, when Jesus rather creates everything, it comes into those two categories. But hold up. If it's visible or invisible and he's a creature, then what in the world is he? Because creatures can only be created visible or invisible. I wish I saw more heads nodding. 
Somebody get a stool for me. I'm going to start drinking coffee. I haven't drunk coffee in over 20 years. I need more amens. I need to know the class is following. We are literally reviewing this for the second time. It is so important you understand that Jesus is not a created being. Give me a stool, and I'll at least sit down and enjoy this a little bit more. Okay, now, second thing. If Jesus created after the Father, the incorrect view here, if after the Father created Jesus, Jesus creates things in heaven, and then, thank you, and then Jesus creates things on earth, where in the world is Jesus? Because before Jesus creates the heavens and the earth, and there's only God, where is Jesus? He cannot be a created being. There's only God at the beginning. God in his nature. Does everybody get that? That is so powerful because that's the logic of Paul. This is the inspired scripture. Now, of course, it's coming directly from God, but Paul understood this. That's why he can write this. You have to understand how we close the door on the ideas that Jesus is a created being. He cannot be a created being because he created everything. That should have stopped the argument there. 1 John 1, 3 should just stop everything. He created everything. He cannot be a created being because he would be a part of everything. That should stop it right there. But then Paul, who's deep, everybody go, Paul's deep. Paul goes deep. John goes poetic. Paul goes deep. Paul wants you, because he's talking to people in Colossia. He's talking to people in Athens. He's talking to the Greek philosophers. He wants them to understand categories, and he wants them to, he wants them to understand that Jesus cannot be a creature based on these categories, because creatures have to be visible or invisible, and he cannot dwell in a place of in between that. Therefore, he created all of that. He must be the creator. He cannot dwell between heaven and earth, because that's all you can dwell in, but he created heaven and earth. Therefore, he must be in the nature of God, in the nature of God, in God's very being, in God's very essence. And then you have some different theologians who argued, and we don't know for sure, but I tend to believe in the eternal begotten nature of the Son, which is he is always the Son. Some believe that at a point he became the Son in eternity past. John MacArthur once believed that, doesn't believe that anymore. And Walter Martin, Walter Martin of the Kingdom of the Cults book author, he still believed that unto his death, that at some point the Father became, uh, the Son became the, the the, 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 the second person became the son, and at that point, the father became the father. He became the son, the Holy Spirit. And the way they would say that is, how long have you been a father? Well, technically, you haven't been a father until you have a son, but you could have existed long before your children. And so they thought that these, these three persons always dwelled without these titles and without this uh, submission or economic nature to each other, submitting one to another. And they thought at some point they, they came into these relationships. That's not necessarily proven in Scripture, but I think it's most clear in Scripture that the Son has always been that person submitting to the Father, and the Spirit has always submitted to the Father and the Son. And so the correct way to see it, as we look at the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, the Spirit's over the depth, and the Word is speaking. We see that the Father, Son, and Spirit create everything that's visible and invisible, and everything that's in heaven and things that are on the earth. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go back to our notes. You guys are doing awesome. That was good. Okay. Now, when we get to verse 7, what are we now supposed to understand? We're supposed to now understand in verse 7, look, he is coming with the clouds. Who is coming now? Jesus, right? Jesus is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Now, go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. John is quoting two scriptures. When he's coming with the clouds of heaven, where does this come from? Daniel. Now we're going to get 
the first quote from Daniel, and it's going to continue throughout the whole book of Revelation. The book of Revelation quotes more from the book of Daniel than any other book. Daniel, in his night vision, is speaking. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So when is this happening? At resurrection, at the coronation of the king, as he's being declared the son of God. And technically, to even be more specific, at his ascension. And as he goes, he's also going to come back. So notice this. Some people have taught that the son of man means his humanity and that the son of God means his divinity. Not according to Daniel. Son of man is a title of divinity given to this person that they only knew looked like a man. Now, here's where the Muslims and other cults like to come in. They say, if he's God, equal with God, why is God being given authority? Didn't he already have it before this time? Why is he being given worship? Didn't he already have worship? They are missing the incarnation again. Remember, the Son, in his divine nature, with the Father, always had worship, always had authority, always had the privilege of that which belongs to God. What changes at the incarnation? He doesn't change his divinity. Remaining God, he now takes on flesh to now redeem us from the curse of the law. This God-man is now given the authority, given now these things. That's why he says in Matthew chapter 28 at the Great Commission, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. The son already had it. Who's the one that now has it? The son in the flesh, the God-man, the one who is one like us, is now ruling with God and the authority of God. That's the incarnation. Isn't that beautiful? And so, yes, we do worship flesh, the flesh of Jesus. No one else's flesh. We do worship a person but no other person than Jesus. And why is Jesus worthy of our worship? Because he took on flesh and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now let's go back to the notes and see the other reference. Go now to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1, because this is when it gets good. This is when it gets good, because they shall see me, the one whom they have pierced. And everybody says that is... Okay, we got, man, we missed the moment there. I'm glad the cameras are now. We'd have to edit that out, have that Oprah Winfrey moment. Okay, go back, go back to the, uh, the notes, please. They will see me or him who they have pierced, and they will mourn because of him. And we all know that is what? Jesus. So if you were to read this, now talking about a Jew who we do not believe is a cult or a false religion, they have just not had the right belief about Jesus. Remember this. Jews are the only religious group of people that do not have to change religions to become a Christian. All they have to do is accept the Messiah. Everyone else has to change a religious format to come into Christianity. Jews can continue in all those things if they want, but it would not be for righteousness sake, as we see Paul and some of the others doing those things. But Jews, by definition, are God's people. They're not saved. But if they want to accept Christ, they can accept Christ and still say, I am a Jew. You cannot accept Christ and say, I'm, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Hindu, I'm a Buddhist, etc. Does everybody get that? Okay, now you show this to a Jew from the, uh, the, the book of Revelation here and go, who is that talking about? The one that they see that they've pierced. And they go, of course, that's Jesus. They pierced Jesus. Go to Zechariah chapter 12. According to Zechariah, a prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord, who does this? 
the Lord. Everybody say the Lord. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person declares. He declares all of these things. Starting from this point on, who is declaring this? The, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now go on down. I believe it's going to be verse 13 or 14. Let's see here. Verse 13, thank you. Is it 13? No, what verse is it? Go back to the, the notes, please. I wish I had it all memorized. Go to uh, verse 10. Now notice the Lord is speaking. There is no break here. There is no trick. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me. me is who? The Lord, the one who they pierce, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child. Wow. So Jesus also appears as the Lord, and we actually believe that whenever you see the word of the Lord, that's Jesus coming. Jesus is the word of the Lord. You can look into the, uh, the different Talmudic writings or what they, what they had as tradition, and when they said the word of the Lord, they talked about the Memra, and the Memra had a personality to it because we see that the word of the Lord is not just appearing as a book and talking from pages, that this is the person known as the word of the Lord. A lot to get into right there you can learn about, but uh, like the Targum of Jonathan, etc. But here we know clearly that the Lord is the one they are going to see. So go back to Revelation. Jesus is the Son of Man who is in a divine relationship with the Ancient of Days, the Father, according to Daniel, and he is the very Yahweh of the Old Testament that they were expecting to see. I can show this to you as well with John the Baptist. He is preparing the way of the Lord. And so in the New Testament, every time we hear the word Lord, we're thinking landlord, the Lord of the manor. No, when it talks about that, go back to the Old Testament, preparing the way of Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. And I've showed you the two persons of Yahweh appearing. Go to Genesis 19 for those who have not seen an example. And some of you go, man, you're twisting the scripture. No, we're working the scripture. These are the things that the church fathers used to show the Jews who Jesus was. Abraham sees... Yahweh appeared to him with two angels. Those two angels leave, and they go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and Yahweh in, uh, you know, goes with Abraham, and Abraham intercedes with Yahweh face to face, just like how Moses met with Yahweh face to face. But now as we go down through Genesis 19, you're going to see Yahweh talking to the other Yahweh. Go down a little bit more. I believe it's going to be like around 17 or something. Keep on scrolling down. Go on down. Keep going. Keep on going. It's going to be past that. Keep on going. There we go. Verse 24. How many remember me showing you this? Okay, like two of you. I've showed, I need to show it more than, don't I? Okay, write it down. Genesis 19, 24. What do we see? Then the Lord, which is Yahweh, Jehovah, Hebrew, that's the, the name of, of God. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from what? The Lord out of the heavens. Are there two lords? My brother, is there two lords? No, two persons who bear the name of Lord, right? Now, what does John 1.18 say? Show it in the other tab, please. What does John 1.18 say? For no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. Who is the Yahweh on earth? Who is the Yahweh on earth? That's, that's meeting with everybody, the pre-incarnate Christ. Who is the Yahweh in heaven? 
That's the Father. And here's an example where people say, well, it always seems like the Son is doing what the Father asked. That must mean even in the Trinity and the economic nature of how they work things out, the Son is lesser. No, that is not true. The Son could always be doing what the Father asked and be of the same nature. My wife always does what I ask, serving me, and she never changes nature. She's still a human being equal to me. When it comes to the Father, though, we do see at times the Son um, giving an injunction to the Father, and that's what we saw there. The, the, the Lord on earth rained down fire and brimstone from the Lord. So who is the one initiating the fire and brimstone? The one on earth, right? And from, from there, the one in heaven, because sometimes they always say it's the Father doing things uh, through Jesus, through Jesus, so he's lesser. No, here we see the Son doing something through the Father, he has that same authority. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and his closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Who makes known to us the Father? Jesus. Let's go back to the notes, please. Revelation. Look. Hallelujah. The Bible tells us to look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. Some people, because of this scripture, believe in reincarnation, that the ones who killed him are alive today, and they will see him. I don't believe that. I believe with their spiritual eyes in hell, they'll be able to see him coming. That's my personal opinion. But we now get to verse 8, and the Father speaking says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. How many know the Father is that? How many know there's no doubt that's the Father right there? First letter of the Greek alphabet, last letter of the Greek alphabet. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. We've heard this before, who was and is and is to come. Did Isaiah see that one? He did, but did he see the Father? No, because we've learned that no one can see the Father and live, right? No one can see him, but we have seen one who bears the same exact titles, who was who is and who is to come. Notice this, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With their two they covered their feet. And with their other two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Keep going. At the sound of the voices and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I'm ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty, the same one that it seems like is having all of this said about him, holy, holy, holy. But now go to the book of John chapter 12. Who does John say Isaiah saw? Do you guys know, students? <laughs> Just say Jesus. Yeah, go there. He said this because he saw Jesus. Isaiah wrote this. Because he saw Jesus. I'll get the exact verse here. John chapter 12, verse 41. John, knowing that Jesus is quoting Isaiah, now tells us who Isaiah saw. Isaiah said these things about the people of Israel because he saw whose glory? Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now go back to the notes, please. Well, hold on. Does that mean what the oneness Pentecostals say? Because we're going to set a lot of things in order. 
The Arians and the others try to say Jesus is a created being, you know. An Arian was a heretic of the, uh, the 4th century in the 300s. And he said Jesus was a created being and then he created everything else. And then you have someone called Sibelius who's around that same time who says Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Just like Joe can be a father and a son and a pastor and have different roles, that's what Jesus is like. And so they'll point to this scripture and say, see, the one sitting on the throne, throne who, who's the Alpha and Omega who was and is is and is to come. That has to be uh, Jesus, even though now it's referring to the person of the Father. So kind of like Jesus shape shifts. And then when you show them the baptism, Father speaking, Jesus being baptized, and Holy Spirit coming as a dove, they believe Jesus is playing ventriloquism and shape shifting all at once. But we show them that that's not the plain reading of the Scripture. The better plain reading of the Scripture is this. There are three persons who are Alpha and Omega. There are three persons who are eternal in their nature. And which one is speaking to us at that time? Because remember, the divine name of God, Yahweh, contains all of that in it. So the Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, and the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Yet there are not three Yahwehs. There are one being of Yahweh shared by three divine persons. That's why in Matthew chapter 28, 19, it says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The name is not the name of Jesus. That's why they're Jesus-only baptism. And they say, well, it says in the book of Acts, they were baptized in Jesus' name. But in Acts 19, it says, Paul asking them, what baptism have you received? John's baptism, and he names it by a name. Baptisms had names and authority. This is Jesus' baptism, in other words. We're baptized in Jesus' authority. And how did Jesus teach us to baptize? In the name, referring to Yahweh, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the Didache also confirms that the first Christians baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not saying Jesus is the Father, Son, and Spirit. But we do now notice that the Father is distinguishing himself and saying, I am the Alpha and Omega. In other words, he's saying, I'm here, I've always been here, and I will always be here. And guess what? Jesus is going to be called the first and the last in just a few moments. So let's keep going. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering in the kingdom with patience and endurance that is ours in Jesus was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We should not be afraid of suffering because suffering is a part of Christianity. John says, I'm suffering with you. How many have suffered for Jesus before? Be encouraged that the greatest among us have suffered for Jesus. You're not alone. We shouldn't look at the one suffering and go, tis, tis, something must be wrong with you. That's superstitious. Bad things only happen to bad people. You must have done something bad. No, bad things happen to good people all the time. A lot of bad things have happened to people that I love. My heroes have died uh, of sickness, and they didn't do anything bad. People that I love have been mistreated and betrayed. Jesus Christ was crucified, and you don't do that to somebody who you love who won the lottery. It's taken you all out to eat, you know? So we should not look at suffering as an indication that God's curse is against you. And then because Oprah's doing so well, Oprah's blessed. Bill Gates, he's blessed. Look at Bill Gates. He's so blessed. No, the Bible actually says it's the opposite way. When you see suffering for the name of Christ, you should see that as a badge of true, true Christianity, that you should rejoice, as Jesus said, because you are suffering like the prophet suffered. He says, don't be discouraged because of me. I'm your companion. It's for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is advancing. Uh, church history tells us that he was boiled alive. It didn't work. They thought something was special about him. And then he eventually escapes, and then he gets recaptured. At that point, they said, you know what? He's an old man now. John was once the youngest. Now he's the oldest. Last living apostle. 
They banish him to an island called Patmos. You can click on that link to learn more about it. He's there because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Those of us who are feeling that we're entering the end times, what do you think we'll suffer persecution for? Because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. We will stand by the, the, the morals of the Bible and we'll suffer for that, will we not? We will stand for the testimony of Jesus, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and we will suffer for that. We will not deny Christ. We're not looking to be martyrs. We're not trying to go cause problems and say, no, you don't like me because I've been a jerk. I'm such a martyr. No, we're talking about genuine persecution coming on the church, as was once prophesied as well. Verse 10, he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. This is how we know they began to worship on Sunday as opposed to the Sabbath that the Jews used to worship on. They considered the day of resurrection, the day they should start to gather on because that was the day Christ was risen. People will try to say, well, the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. Yes, and that's one of them that we do not have to keep. The Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. I know that may sound weird to your ears that there's a Ten Commandment we do not keep, but we do not keep the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And so Paul said in Colossians, just go there so everybody can see it, we are not to be judged by that ceremonial law. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Let no one judge you on holy days. Uh, go on down, please. Uh, let's go to, let's go, yeah, keep on going, please. It's going to be here. Yeah, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. How many know they had dietary laws? Jesus declared all food clean. Or with regard to a religious festival, how many know Jesus commanded Old Testament festivals? Or a new moon, how many know that's part of the Old Testament? Or a Sabbath day, Old Testament again. These are a shadow of the things to come. The reality is found in what? Christ. Go to Hebrews chapter, I believe, 4. Christ is our Sabbath. So what did that ceremonial law teach us, this day of rest? That there is a spiritual rest in Christ from our works. Hebrews 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you are found uh, to fall short of it because we know that they had the gospel proclaimed, but they had unbelief. Keep going. Uh, let's go down to uh, verse 4. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his works. And again, in the passage, he says, they shall never enter my rest. So it's like God was giving them as a shadow that they should trust him. They didn't. So they never really even got that point. But now verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day. Some may say a certain day. The certain day day of the Sabbath now is not the last day of the week. It's the day what? You get saved, calling it today. This is what uh, he did a long time ago when he spoke to his prophet David or his messenger. Today, if you hear his voice and you do not harden your hearts, you will find this rest. For if Joshua could give them rest, God wouldn't need to later do it. Look at verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For verse 10, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. Come on, from their what? The works, just as God did from his. What was the example of the Sabbath rest in the Old Testament? To rest from your works. What was the example or the shadow of the dietary law? To be separate from the nations. What was the example of the civil law that God is going to judge? All of those things. But now in a new covenant, not all of those things follow in. Okay? Does everybody get that? Yeah. Let's go back. That's why he's on the Lord's Day. He's at church. On the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit. He's in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will send the Spirit in my name, and where the Spirit is, the Father and Son will also be. He said, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. This is the angel speaking that was sent by Jesus. 
to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergam, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We'll talk about those in our next time together. Then I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the golden lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. So what we see here is that there's an angel next to Jesus. So he turns around to hear the voice that's speaking to him, and now he puts his eyes right on the Jesus. That's what's happening there. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were, bra- uh, were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of rushing waters. How many know that's awesome? In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its brilliance. This is the picture we get now of Jesus in his glorified state. How many know he's not a baby anymore? Amen. I have heard people try to make this a racial issue. The um, uh, black Hebrew Israelites have tried to say the bronze means he's black. Well, then that means his face is like a sun, so he must be a Pokemon character. (laughs) You know, people take this to mean what it doesn't mean. But even if it meant burning like bronze, how many know most of our flesh would burns like, burn like bronze? Most of us, unless you are from a Scandinavian country, most people, Italians, Indians, uh, Asians, African Americans, Mediterraneans, Egyptians, how many know most people, other than maybe a Scandinavian type person, could even have their skin look like this? So, first of all, it's not meant to give us a people group that Jesus identifies more than anybody else with. It's not meant to do that. What it's meant to do is to say he is now in his glorified state. He is in the state that Daniel saw. He is in his kingly state, and the descriptions are just powerful. He does have a head full of hair that's as white as snow. His eyes are like fire. His face is bright like the sun. His skin is like something that is burning and that is full of energy flowing through it, like a blacksmith working with metals. His flesh is on fire, in other words. And his face, when, when we look at someone's countenance, his face is like the sun. Can we ask them to keep it down back there, please? Thank you. And all of it's brilliant. So I just, I use my imagination and I try to see what's happening here. And then out of his mouth comes a sword. Does that mean he's like one of these Vegas acts swallowing a sword, but now it's the opposite way? Once again, this is imagery. Welcome to the book of Revelation. The imagery is that we're supposed to understand he's powerful. He's, he's greater than the source of the sun. He made the sun. He is uh, aged and wise. He's not a baby. He was never a baby uh, uh, in, in his nature except when he became a man. So he never had to learn anything in that way. What he learned was as a man. So now we're seeing that he's always known all things, that he's in his glorified state. And think about this now being John. You're being, you're being persecuted for Jesus. It would be hard to think about how this is all going to wrap up if the last image you have is him being crucified and maybe still him walking around as a normal man, just, you know, getting something to eat and ascending to heaven. Jesus now wants to show John to tell us all as his disciples what he looks like when he comes as a warrior king. He is not going to look just like someone we're going to have a negotiation with. I think about all these people that are God-haters, and they think they're going to tell God, I would rather reign in hell than serve you. There will be no, no words out of their mouths except Jesus is Lord. The Bible says with a rod of iron, he will crush them and break them and trod and on them. 
like a person does grapes. The grapes of wrath saying comes from the book of Revelation. He will strike down over a hundred million as he's on his horse later in the book. And the, the blood will flow as high as a horse's head for over a hundred miles. There'll be no discussions. There'll be no, let's work it out with him. Let's try to make this comparative religion thing work. That's what John is supposed to be getting across to us here. But yet, everybody understand this. When John starts to engage with him, he's gentle to him. He's kind. He's not angry with John. He's not wanting to punish John. He doesn't want, in one sense, to do this because he's still merciful to the world. And look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Isaiah 44, verse 6 Yahweh says, I am the first and the last, and besides me there is no God. Jesus uses those same words. So even though the Father says I'm Alpha and Omega, first and last letters of the Greek uh, alphabet, there is no reference to that being used in the Old Testament. But Jesus literally uses the exact words that he used in the Old Testament, first and last. He says, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. In other words, this can be discussed later. In other words, he holds the sentence of death upon us and what the grave can hold on our bodies. He now holds it as victorious so that we now can rise from the dead, that we now have authority over death. Death, where is your sting? As Paul says, he has the authority over, over God's judgment, so we are not even to fear death. And now he speaks to John, write therefore what you have seen. What is now and what will take place later. And remember, time frames can be different with God. He says a day to him is like a thousand years to us, as we've talked about before. Now notice this. There was a mystery about these seven stars and seven lampstands just in the verses before. Go up to those verses before so everybody can see it, please. It says right here in verse 15, he has seven stars, and he's uh, among the seven lampstands, right? It says he, holds, he holds seven stars in his hand. Does it say anything about the lampstands there? No, it just says he's holding the stars there. Okay. What I want you to notice, go on down now to verse 20, is he uh, now tells us what those stars are. I want you to get this as an interpretive principle as we go through the book of Revelation. Most mysteries will be revealed in the book itself. How many know that's what Jesus did with his parables? To those closest to him, he would tell a parable about a farmer doing these types of things. Then he would go alone to his disciples and say, this is what it means. The seed is the word. The ground is the heart, you know, et cetera. And so now we got to get out of this hyper-mystical understanding of Revelation and just look for the meaning that we get right in the book. So he's holding seven stars. Okay, what is the mystery of the seven stars? That you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what are we going to now get in the next portion of the, of the, the book of Revelation? We're going to hear Jesus speaking to the seven angels over the seven churches. Now, before you think, uh, you know, maybe Jesus is talking to the angelic beings, remember that the word angel just simply means messenger. Most people like myself believe he's talking to the pastors of that church, the lead elder there. 
He's speaking to the ones overseeing the church. These are the ones he considers to be his messengers. Because remember, a messenger can come from heaven and have an angelic or heavenly origin, or a messenger can come from earth and have an earthly origin. They're both messengers of the Lord. Us and those other beings have no different job assignment. It's just what God wants that job to be done. Uh, who wants, you know, it's, it's who he wants to do that job. At times he sends angels to do the job of being his messenger. At times he sends people. But how many know we're both messengers? And also as a distinguishment, the messengers that come from heaven, like Michael, like Gabriel, do not have the six wings. Those are the seraphim and cherubim, other angelic creatures, and we'll be learning about them later. There's other creatures that God has in heaven just besides angels and humans. Isn't that amazing? He has all these other kinds of creatures we're going to learn about. And once again, some people may take them figurative or literal. I like to take it literal, okay? I think these creatures exist. Uh, I do think there will be some spiritual interpretation to when we understand the beast or the horns and these kinds of things, but it will tell us, the book will tell us that these horns represent this. This beast represents this. Pretty cool, amen? So we don't have to wonder is something like uh, Pacific, if you, anybody ever saw the movie Pacific where these interdimensional aliens come from other creatures like Godzilla. I'm looking at some of the nerds in the audience that like sci-fi. I don't think like literally the beast is coming like one of those Godzilla creatures, seven horns and all of this. I believe that the scriptures tell us that's what's there. But when the Bible doesn't tell us this means something else and it just says, oh, there's a creature here that has the face like an eagle or the face like a bull and has wings and this and that. I'm like, cool. There's a creature in heaven that has a face like a bull and has wings and does those certain things. Because whoever said that only creatures could have human faces? Ain't, you know, the angels that come out of heaven, they have human faces like us. But who said that's the only uh, creatures that could talk, right? So God can create any kind of creature that he wants. Anybody ever watch the mass singer or the mass dancer? And we look at that as kids, and we're, like, fascinated by all their outfits. And I was like, man, that's cool. Well, why couldn't God use all of that? And if you remember on earth, God gave us images of these different things that we were supposed to understand that, like the seraphim over the Ark of the Covenant, that there were different kinds of creatures. I think they were cherubs, rather. Jared, which one were they, cherubs or seraphim that were over the Ark of the Covenant? Cherub. cherub. Thank you, my brother. And when we think of cherub, why is it now people think of naked baby angels? That is not a cherub, but cherub is a powerful creature with wings, okay? Anywho, today we have learned who Christ is. Let's go back to the first and the last as Vinny comes as we close out today. Are you guys blessed to know who Jesus is? Amen. As we get into the next part of the book, we're going to learn what Jesus has to say about the churches. Jesus is going to be giving his report card to each of the major churches at that time. For our Roman Catholic friends, where's the Church of Rome? <laughs> Wasn't even really around at that time. Christians were still being so <laughs> killed at that time. So a lot of times the Roman Catholics get caught in a whole bunch of different things in the book of Revelation. Notice that Rome's not even on Jesus' mind at this point. Okay? And so when we look at uh, this, this story being put before us with all the imagery, we're supposed to know that Jesus is the first and the last. Can you highlight that, please? Good, sir. Thank you for your help back there today. Somebody say the first. And the last, think about how this should be uh, comforting to those people at that time and comforting to us. Jesus is the first. He was here before it all went wrong. His intention for us was always good. He was there communing with Adam. How many just get a sense of peace thinking about Jesus being the first? Just a sense of peace, remembering what it was like in the Garden of Eden through the stories that we've heard. 
before there was storming of the Capitol and the politicians that didn't care about unborn life and corruption of businesses. How many are just happy to know that at the very beginning, the first was our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the one that loves us and cares for us and wants the best for us. And how many are encouraged that he's also the last? That means he sees the end of how all of this works out. Loved ones passing that we're going to miss for a time. He knows at the last how it works out when we see them again. The suffering that we endure, the ridicule, and how it always seems like the wicked have the upper hand. The story of Goliath keeps going and going and going. And yet we can close our eyes and focus on Jesus and see he's there at the end. Almost like how I am as a father when I teach my children to walk and say, I'm right here. Just come on, keep coming. I'm right here. Jesus is standing in heaven going, I'm coming back. And I'm right here. I've gone here to prepare places for you that you might be with me. So where's the middle? Of course he's still there because if he encompasses the first and the last, he encompasses everything in the middle. I call this the valley of the shadow of death. And there he is walking alongside of us because in those next few verses he goes, hey, I was once dead. Now look, I'm alive. I came as a man, suffered as a man. I suffered like how you are suffering. I was tempted like how you were tempted. I was abandoned like how you were abandoned. I was rejected like how you are rejected. And look, I'm good now. I'm alive now. I'm not rejected anymore. I'm not being beat anymore. And so through the shadow of death, we are to find our trust in Jesus. Find our hope in Jesus. Find all that we need in Jesus. As Corey Tim Boone once said, you won't realize that Jesus is all you need until he's all you have. And for us in America, we got really comfortable, didn't we, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. And we as Christians now, we're getting shook up a little bit. Our heroes are falling to the right and to the left. I feel just like David, a thousand fall at my one side. A denomination goes down this way. Another movement goes this way. But Jesus says, it's not going to touch you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bring you through. He's going to raise up a remnant of believers like Elijah. And so, brothers and sisters, he's holding the church in his hands today. He's telling those churches of Asia, which are about ready to face one of the greatest persecutions that the church has ever faced. They're going to be impaled and lit up with oil as Roman candles on the sides of the roads. They're going to be fed to wild beasts, stripped naked. They're going to watch their children be raped and pillaged. Literally, they're going to face this. And Jesus is telling John, John, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I once was dead, but look, I'm alive, and I'm alive forever. No one can stop this. And I've got death and hell in my hands. But not only do I have the keys of death and hell, I have the pastors in my hands, and I have their churches in my hands. Today, the church of Jesus Christ is in the hands of the Lord. 
today, if you're a pastor or you're a leader here today or a disciple of Christ, you are in the hands of Jesus. And he wants you to know he's coming for you. And not even death and hell can separate you from him. Not what they do to you or I. He's greater than all that we face. Band and altar workers, would you come please? As they come, would you just raise up your hands in an attitude of prayer and just worship him and say, I believe you are the first and the last. You're coming for me, Jesus. Jesus.